Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. By request, we will talk about Al-Hanisim. And I feel like people who remember well, people like Larry Herman, for example, will say, oh, we did all this last year. So, um, but maybe you forgot some little piece of it. Maybe I have something slightly new. Okay. So we're going to look at Al-Hanisim, page uh, 42 in the Slim Shalom, page 116 in the Sim Shalom. I was in Betham this Shabbat morning for Bat Mitzvah. They and they're on Shabbat morning. They announce three pages. It's really confusing. <laughs> three, three different sidurim. Um, so Al So um, in Talmudic times, in the Tosefta, actually, which is a Tanaitic document, meaning it's sort of parallel to the Mishnah, but not in the Mishnah. Um, it already says um, one mentions Han- one should mention Hanukkah and Purim in Birkat Hoda'ah, the blessing of gratitude. And it does not specify the text. Okay? So that means going back to the year 200-250 is the tradition that one ought to mention something about Hanukkah or Purim on the appropriate day in this bracha. There's a line or two of the text in Masechet Sofrim, which is so-called one of the minor Talmudic tractates, which is about the year 600-ish. And then by the time we get to the first Sidur of Rav Amram Gaon, which is in, uh, I think, uh, 858, 875. Um, hold on, I have to let someone in, Meyer. By the time we get to Amram, Rav Amram Sidur, 858, 75, Al-Hanisim is pretty much there as we know it, um, with pretty similar wording to what we have. Okay? So that means during Talmudic times, there was already a tradition. You're supposed to add something in this bracha, brachanaka, and by Geonic times in the 800s, we pretty much have the text we have. How it evolved and how it got to be there, as per usual, we know nothing about that. Um, the text is very similar in all Sidur traditions with little minor word variations and wordings here and there. Um, last year, we got into a long discussion, Larry, about Bayami Mahem Uvazman Hazeh. Um, and it, and we said that was made up by some modern people in Israel, but actually that is in some of the old original Sidur traditions I discovered when I did more research. So we're going to take a quick look and then we're going to look at two other texts. That's my agenda for today. And we're not going to analyze every single word in Al Anisim. We're just going to try to get the general gist of it. Okay. And what does Al mean? Al means for. So to understand, F-O-R, so to understand this grammatically, we have to go back to Modim and understand that this is a prayer stuck in the middle of a bracha. And in Modim, we say, we thank you, God, al-chayenu, hamsurim yadecha, for our lives, ve'al nishmotenu, and for our souls, ve'al nisecha, and for your miracles. And then we add, as if we're grammatically in the middle of a sentence, al-hanisim, for the miracle, so we're in the middle of a sentence, grammatically and conceptually, we thank you, God, for our lives. If you go track back into Modim, the thank you prayer. We thank you, God, for our lives, 
for our souls, for all the daily miracles. Alanisim, for the miracles and the salvation and the mighty acts and the savings and the wars. Shasita Lavotena Bayamimahem, Basman Hazeh, or Uvazman Hazeh, although most traditions say Bayamimahem, Basman Hazeh, which means in those days at this time of year. Okay? Um, we had a discussion last year about does that mean Uva, when we say Uvazman Hazeh, which is not the regular Ashkenazi text, even though it's in the Slim Shalom, does that mean you did miracles for us in those days and today? Okay, but the but that's not the common text. It's uh, you did for uh, our ancestors at this time many years ago is what that means. Okay, so for the miracles, so we thank you, God. Back to Modim for our lives, for our souls, for our daily miracles. And now we add for the miracles, the saving, the wars, the salvation that you did for our ancestors at this time long ago. That's the introductory paragraph. And it's the same for Hanukkah, for Purim, and in the new version for Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Okay? Then we get to the specific event. So then I'd say then there's a period. Okay. And then we tell the story. In the days of Matityahu and his sons, when the wicked Greek empire stood up against your people Israel to to force them to stop learning Torah and stop doing mitzvot, you and your great mercy. And now we see the rhythm of the poetry. If it seems to rhyme, it's because it's supposed to rhyme, right? You, you, you fought their battle, you judge their judgment, you revenge their revenge. And then we have another poem of five things that basically are synonyms for you helped the good guys beat the bad guys, right? You hand it over the strong to the hands of the weak, the mighty to the hands of the many, the impure into the hands of the pure, the evildoers into the hands of the, of the righteous ones, and the evildoers in the hands of those who did your Torah. Right? You handed over the bad guys into the hands of the good guys. And you made a great name for yourself. The implication is by doing this, by having the small, intrepid, persecuted band of the Jewish people in Eretz Israel beat the big, big, bad, Seleucid war machine, you, Hashem, made a great reputation for yourself for doing this, right? Which sort of harks back to things in the Torah, right? Like the crossing of the Red Sea is something that accrues to God's reputation, that God made such miracles, and people hear about such miracles. So it's a similar kind of idea, I think. So you made for yourself a great reputation. Shem Gadol, big name, means big, great reputation. You made for yourself a great reputation, and for your people Israel, you made a great victory. So God's glory is increased, and we are the ones who are victorious. And then, so I'm telling the story still, right? And after that, what's that? That's the big war victory. 
your children came to your house, which refers obviously to the Beit HaMikdash, and they cleaned up your temple and purified your temple, and lit candles in your holy precincts, and they established these eight days of Hanukkah, to praise your great name. And then grammatically, just to go ahead, we say, again, all here is for, and for all of those things, we thank you. So what's all of those things? Our lives, our souls, our daily miracles in Modim, and uh, for our lives, all for our souls, for our daily miracles, and for the miracles and the salvation you did long ago at this time of year, um, at this time of year, many years ago. And then I told the story and then we go on say, and for all of the great things you did for us, we thank you with the rest of the bracha. That's kind of the structure of the bracha. So I just want to pause and say, before we look at what's all Anisim about, is there any questions about any of that? Or actually, before I ask for questions, let's just say what's all Anisim about. So all Anisim if I asked you to summarize, I don't know if you could summarize in one sentence, but we'll allow you two sentences, maybe-ish. And I said, what's the idea of Alanisim? What are we commemorating? What would you say? Short story. We're explaining to a visitor from another religion what we're commemorating, what we're saying in that paragraph. Larry, are you answering the question? I think there's a hand raised. Yeah, well, I'll answer the question. I have two others, but I'll answer the question. It's, yeah. It's our victories against over our oppressors, which was given to us by God. Yeah, I, I, there's a reservation about that because in Purim, God doesn't figure into it. But yeah, in the prayer, yeah, it was given to us by God. In the prayer, given to us by God, you're the one who gave us this great victory, our oppressors. And after that, and then we say, and after that victory, they went and they purified the temple and they lit lights and they established these eight days of Hanukkah, the purpose of which is to praise you, which we just did in the words of Hallel, for example. In other words, the establishment of this holiday is established as an act of praise and gratitude for you, for the great victory that you gave us. Okay? So if I said to you, based on Alanisim, what is the miracle of Hanukkah? Uh, someone's someone someone needs to mute. Maybe Bernie. Will everybody please mute? Everyone please mute. I think it's Bernie who's unmuted. Um, what is the miracle of Hanukkah? The answer is the miracle of Hanukkah is the few good guys defeated the many and more powerful bad guys. The miracle of Hanukkah is a military victory, I think, according to Al Anisim. Okay, Larry, I'll allow your two questions if you ask them very succinctly, because I don't, because they, uh, and I reserve the right to not be derailed. Go ahead. Very succinct. I'm always intrigued by Allah Milchamot. Yeah. In other words, we're thanking God for the wars, but yes. rather than for the victories. Yes. And the second, and the second point is, it is interesting that the entire text of the Alanisim for the for Hanukkah focuses on the victory and not on the miracle of the oil, because we've always been taught that the rabbis emphasized the miracle of the oil because they were pacifists and didn't want to emphasize the military victory. But this 
This paragraph basically belies that, says it's not true. It's always been a, a major issue, a ma- major uh, theme. Thank you. Larry's like the pitcher who lobbed it to me easily underhand so that I could take a good swing at it, because that's what we're going to look at. Not next, but next, next. Um, by the way, it is interesting that Al-Hamil Hamot is last. It, whether or not you like Al-Hamil Hamot for the wars, you would think if you were writing this, you wouldn't put it last. You'd put Al-Hamil Hamot and then Al-Hatishuot, the victories. You'd say for the wars and the victories. By the way, Sephardim ad here, after victories and wars, Al-Hanechamot and on the consolations, right? For the salvation and the mighty acts and the saving, the victories and the wars and the consolations. You could make a whole drosh out of that, right? That out of war, there's got to be, I don't want to say reconciliation between the sides, but some consolation. Um, but that's in the Sephardic text. It's not in the Ashkenazic text, but I'm not going to make a drosh out of that. Um, I am going to attempt. Okay. Before I screen share, the Hanukkah battle was fought in the 160s BCE. I think the Hasmonean revolt is 165 to 162. It's either 168 to 165 or 165 to 162. I can't remember. I think the latter. And 162 Hanukkah, 162 BCE before the Common Era is the date that we usually give. Um, and we know that from... Um, chronologies in the book of Maccabees and in Josephus, the historian. Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote in Greek uh, 200 years later after the destruction of the temple. Um, but the book of Maccabees, the, there are two, two books that are in the Apocrypha, meaning they're Jewish books that didn't make it into the canon of the Tanakh and were preserved thus only in Greek and only by Christian churches. Um, but they're originally Jewish books. They're called One Maccabees and Two Maccabees. Um, One Samuel and Two Samuel is one long book, which is broken into two. One Kings and Two Kings is one long book that's broken into two. But One Maccabees and Two Maccabees are not one long book that's broken into two. They're two entirely separate books written by entirely different people with a different point of view, okay? But they're both written probably within... 50 plus years of the events of Hanukkah. So they are actually then, that means the we think the closest documents that we have to the Hanukkah era. And we're going to take a look at a, we're going to take a quick look at a passage from two Maccabees, if I can figure out how to screen share. And then we'll, t- we'll take a look at the rabbis of the Talmud. Okay. We see my screen share. Yeah. And this is just, I found it online. You know, you can just look up one Maccabees online, two Maccabees online, if you want to read it. And you can look at the Wikipedia articles. I'm not going to tell you like, what's the difference between the two books and when they were written and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. Just say written within 50 to 70 years after the Hanukkah events by the year 100 BCE. I think that's what the scholars say. Okay. Now Maccabeus, which means Judah, sorry, I'm in two Maccabees chapter 10, verse one right where my cursor is here. Now, Maccabeus and his followers, which is means Yehuda HaMakabi. Terry's here. Thank you, Terry. Now, Yehuda HaMakabi and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. 
And they tore down the altars which had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary, made another altar of sacrifice, then striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years and they burned incense on the present. When they had done this, they fell prostrate, besought the Lord that they may never again fall into some misfortunes. It happened on the same day that the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners. The purification of the sanctuary took place on the 25th day of Kislev. They celebrated it for eight days of with rejoicing. Pay attention. In the manner of the Feast of Booths, which we call what in Hebrew? Sukkot. Sukkot. Remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. So according to two Maccabees, why did they celebrate eight days? Because they missed Sukkot. Sukkot, the pilgrimage, pilgrimage festival to the temple par excellence, they were not able to do because they were freedom fighters who were on the lamb hiding out in caves. So they said, okay, now we're going to have a makeup festival. Okay, that's why it was eight days. Uh, therefore, they... They wands, branches, palm fronds, meaning they, they had lulavs, right? Offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public ordinance and vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. So according to the book of Maccabees, why is, um, at, least, at least according to, I want to make you big again so I can see you all. Sorry, this is not about you. This is about me. I can't. I can't see you. Okay. Um, the hymns of Thanksgiving was Hallel. Well, so they said Hallel. They had lulavs because they had missed Sukkot. Okay. Um, so um, again, in two Maccabees, although we have this detail about missing Sukkot, the point of what they did. Why did they do this? Is because they had won, they repurified the temple and kicked out the Tameh stuff, and they were rededicating the temple. Less emphasis on the details of the war than in Al-Hanisim, although much of the, the preceding chapters of the Book of Maccabees was, in fact, all about the wars. Okay? So we might say that um, Al-Hanisim and the Book of Maccabees Again, Book of Maccabees is a Jewish book, although it never made it into the Jewish canon. Um, that Al-Hanisim and the Book of Maccabees are uh, not entirely dissimilar. Okay, and they both say Hanukkah is to commemorate this victory um, that our intrepid band won. God gave them that victory. They repur- they purified and rededicated the temple. By the way, another potential reason that Hanukkah was eight days is when the temple was first dedicated in the book of Numbers, the Midbar, not the temple, the Mishkan, okay? The inauguration festival was eight days. So we have two potential reasons why Hanukkah was eight days. One, they were inaugurating the temple service, except they were re-inaugurating, okay? Two, at Book of Maccabees, because they had missed Sukkot, and they were not able to have their normal eight-day festival, so this was kind of a makeup. Still, there is no, as Larry has noted, miracle of the oil. Everyone with me? Okay. I'm screen sharing. Do you see uh, Tractate Shabbat 
21B? Yeah. Someone say yes. 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 Thank there you. There we go. Yes. Thank you. Yes, that's yes. better. Thank you. Okay. okay. Yes. This is from the Babylonian Talmud Tractate Shabbat. The only, pa- I don't want to say the only, uh, but the major passage in the whole Talmud that talks about Hanukkah. It's a couple of pages long. Why is it in Tractate Shabbat? Because there's a long passage about what substances, what oils you're allowed to use to light your Shabbat lights that you light Erev Shabbat, which of course they didn't light candles like we have back then. They had oil lamps. So it's about what kinds of oil substances you're allowed to use for Shabbat or for Hanukkah. So the context is lighting oil lamps, right? And it says Shabbat and Hanukkah, and then talks about how long it has to light, how long it has to last for on Hanukkah. And then this very odd thing, which every rabbi who's ever taught rabbinic sources teaches this, on Hanukkah teaches this passage. My Hanukkah, after they have about, I don't know, page or two of discussion about what oils you can use or can't use on Shabbat and Hanukkah. Then they say, so what is Hanukkah? Which is very odd, right? So we might understand this to mean sort of like, so what is Hanukkah about? So the rabbis take it for granted that there is Hanukkah because they're talking all about what candles you can use or can't use. And then they pause and they say, well, so what is Hanukkah? Okay. Because the Gemara answers, as the sages taught in Megillat Ta'anit. Don't worry about what that is. That's another Jewish source. On the 25th day of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah are eight. One may not eulogize on them and one may not fast on them, meaning they're days of joy. You cannot turn them into days of mourning. What is the reason? When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary by touching them. And when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that was placed with the seal of the high priest, undisturbed by the Greeks. And there's sufficient oil there to light the candelabrum for only one day. A miracle occurred and they lit the candelabrum from it eight days. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays with recitation of Hallel and special thanksgiving in prayer and blessing. That's the whole story of Hanukkah in the Talmud. That's it. Okay. So although it does say the Hasmoneans beat the Greeks, it obviously does not dwell with many synonyms and rhyming words about the victory of the good guys over the bad guys, the few over the many, there's nothing about the battles and the mighty acts and all the stuff that Alhanisim sort of heaps up over and over again. There is the purifying of the temple and there's the oil that burned miraculously for eight days. So the next year they said, we got to make a festival to commemorate this miracle, which is the burning of the oil for eight days. So if we could just take a step back, All three Jewish sources that we looked at talk about that they know that there's an eight-day festival of Hanukkah. Maccabees, I'm uh, going to say that sentence differently. Al-Hanisim seems to follow the ideology or the idea in the book of Maccabees that the miracle of Hanukkah 
was a military victory. The sages of the Talmud say the miracle of the Hanukkah was the oil that lit for eight days, right? By the way, these are our only core sources about this. So anything you read about this other than this is later, okay? These are the earliest sources that we have. And Al-Anisim, again, 600, 700 of the common era. So that's written like, you know, seven or 800 years after the Hanukkah events. Babylonian Talmud, it's a Tana Rabbanan, which means it's a Baraita or a Tanaitic source. So that source might be from over 300 years after the Hanukkah events, right? The earliest one we actually have is the Book of Maccabees, which didn't make it into our official Jewish canon. So, um, so Larry echoed what is sometimes said is to be the party line. The rabbis were uncomfortable or rejected or did not buy into the idea of that Hanukkah is about military victory. Uh, and they have an alternative miracle of Hanukkah. They supply an alternative miracle of Hanukkah and why it lasts eight days. Now, there are historical things in the Talmud about the ancestors of the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Prushim, and the Hasmonean, the later Hasmonean dynasty did not always get along so well. It's an understatement. The ancestors of the rabbis, the Pharisees, the intellectual ancestors of the rabbis, rabbis were sometimes actually persecuted by some of the Hasmonean kings. Okay. So you could say that the rabbis have a bad memory of the Hasmoneans, and that's why they don't want to emphasize their military victory. Or the rabbis have a very bad memory of what happens when the Jewish people gets embroiled in revolt, because although Hanukkah was in 165 BCE, 230 years later is the destruction of the temple. 65 years later is the devastating um, decimation of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which is probably actually, in terms of population slaughter, worse for the Jews in Eretz Israel than the destruction of the temple. It's hard for us to think of it as more devastating, this, the destruction of the temple, but it may have actually been more devastating for Jewish life in Eretz Israel, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which was 132 to 135 of the common era. That's 300 years. So we could say the rabbis have a very bad memory of what happens to the Jewish people in revolt when they try to rise up against their stronger oppressors. There was no miracle in 70 and there was no miracle in 135. So for various reasons, which, you know, the rabbis didn't leave footnotes. So it's just, uh, or a philosophy, it's just, you know, we're hypothesizing. They seem to be not so interested in talking about the miracle of Hanukkah. So the thing that I find interesting is that our assumption because um, of lots of stuff that we learned, is that the rabbis decided, whoever they were and however they decided, what should be in the Sidur. But the evidence of Al-Hanisim is apparently that is not so, because Al-Hanisim is not actually about what the rabbis say Hanukkah is about. Al-Hanisim 
is actually about what the book of Maccabees says Hanukkah is about. All right. So this raises questions about um, how much did the sages of the Talmud actually control what was done and said in synagogues? Maybe not as much as we think, right? We, we, we efface it and put it all together. You know, the rabbis, they wrote the Siddur and they decided when you bow and all this kind of stuff. But maybe there were different forces or maybe there were different groups of rabbis, right? And there's kind of one stream that controls the Hanukkah story version in the Babylonian Talmud at another stream that didn't get that memo. So whether that means Al-Hanisim is written by other rabbis or non-rabbis, right? Who would be people who would be deciding what is said in shul if it wasn't the sages of the Talmud? That's actually, uh, that's a question that we don't really have an answer to, okay? But we know that there were prayer leaders who composed prayers and maybe they didn't all get the memo that Hanukkah is the story of the miracle of oil for eight days. Maybe they believed that Hanukkah was the miracle of a military victory. By the way, in the earliest Sidurim, Rav Amram and Rav Sa'adya, there is then a line or two that's added saying, and just as you made miracles for them in their days, so may you also make miracles for us in our time. Then there's a debate about that in the halacha, in the Ashkenazi halacha, about uh, 1100, 1200, 1100 to, you know, the first few centuries of this millennium. No, the first few centuries of the second millennium, right? 1100, 1200, 1300. And the halacha decides we don't ask for that at the end of uh, Al-Hanishim. It's actually kind of erased that line, right? It says, no, we're just saying gratitude. We're not asking for things. Remember that, that whole discussion about, can you ask for things in the last three brachot? The halachic conclusion is we're only expressing gratitude. We're not asking for things. So we do not say, just as you made miracles for our ancestors back then, please do miracles for us in this day. So it's very interesting. Al-Hanisim that we have kind of attests to the fact that what we think of as a unitary, the rabbis of the Talmud culture was either not so unitary or not fully in control of what people said in shul. So I just want to let that sort of linger and hang there. It gives us a bumpier and more complex view, uh, less, not, not more complex, less unitary view, let's put it that way, of how our liturgy evolved. So Al-Hanisim seems to be a prayer untouched by the ideology expressed in the Babylonian Talmud about what Hanukkah is about. The miracle is about military victory. Now, notice, by the way, in Maccabees and Al-Hanisim, the link is, and they lit lights, right? Which means like they relit the menorah or something like that. They came back to the temple, they purified it, they lit lights and they sang Hallel or something like Hallel, right? So the lights are there in all the sources, but the miraculous light for eight days is only in that passage in the Talmud. 
It's not in any other sources. All right, Jeff, then Larry, then we'll wrap up. So um, over the years, I've read and heard people talk about one of the reasons for the discomfort with the military victory is that there were elements of a civil war, really. Yes, it was a civil war. Right. The Hanukkah story was story of an internal civil war of Jews, the assimilationists versus the old fashionedists, the traditionalists, and the assimilationists were allied with the Syrian Greeks who, you know, and you can, you can argue about which, who was the driver of that, you know, the, the outside Hellenists finding the internal party of assimilationists or the internal assimilationists calling in the outsiders. So, um, yes. So, but all, again, all that is a theory. Like why was the discomfort Uh, you now have before you all of the primary data? I mean, you could read all of one Maccabees and two Maccabees. You'd have more primary data, but let's just say, so whatever theory you've heard is some theory that someone made up. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying a later person is trying to infer why, why did the, why is the memory of Hanukkah, in the vast, huge, many-volume Talmud reduced to oil that burned for eight days, right? Yep, in in a section about Shabbat. (laughs) In a a tractate about Shabbat, right? In a tractate, in a section devoted to what kind of oil you can use, right? So clearly, the story of Hanukkah is, we'll just say, somewhat Mm de-emphasized, They agreed that you say Hallel on it, right? And you say full Hallel, not abbreviated Hallel, right? So it was obviously a complicated story. But I guess the the question is, who decided that you say Hallel? And who decides on what we're commemorating and what the memory is? So I just want to raise that question to just sort of say, oh, even when we look at pretty early sources, there are different answers to that question. Larry, sorry, Jeff, did we... Is there anything else you want to say, Jeff? No. You're making the comment of the we always learn, right? It's like the we always learn, right? So where does we always learn come from? It's an inference that people make looking at this data. I am bringing you the raw data. There's no footnote that says this is why the rabbis of the Talmud said that. Anyone who says that is a later person who is ex post facto trying to interpret these data. So I'm putting it before you so that you can make your own inference. Larry. Fantastic and fascinating um, session today. I assume that there's some, I assume there's some doctoral dissertation that's, that's dealt with this, but your question or your, you, you've left, you've left it up to us to speculate and come up with answers. The, the thing you said about the rabbis, whether they had power over the Sidur and over the service kind of, and I say this with modesty, reminds me of my experience in Mozambique, where I didn't have much, I had contact, I have internet and all that, Mm -hmm. but I had some ability to sculpt the service to the needs of that community. And I assume that that rabbis or prayer leaders in early days of of the religion had even more power to do that. And the popular desire to have a hero and to have heroes like Hanukkah and Purim 
that celebrate our strength when we're weak right now, I think would have been pretty strong. And it would have caused some of the some of the rabbis to say, okay, let's celebrate these as holidays. Because I've always found it really perplexing that these two holidays are stuck in there. They're the only non-Torah holidays that we have. I mean, not including Yom HaTzma'ut. And I think that maybe it fits into your theory that there was this populism or maybe independence of the rabbis. And I'm just, I wonder whether you've come across scholarship that actually focuses on this aspect of the development of the Siddur, the liturgy and the holidays. Well, there is a lot of scholarship on, um, we assume that the rabbis of the, Mishnah and Talmud ran the whole show in terms of telling the Jewish people how to live. You know, but Rebbe wrote the Mishnah and everyone lived according to the Mishnah. Um, and that's what they said 40 years ago, right? And since then, there are scholars who say, actually, no, it might have taken up to the years, even as late as 1,000-ish for, I'm going to put it in air quotes, Talmudic culture to totally take over the Jewish people. Even then, there were pockets of resistance to it, like the Karaites. Um, And it took hundreds of years for people to get the memo that they were supposed to live according to Talmudic Judaism. And the world didn't stop during those hundreds of years. Jews lived in villages. They gathered in their synagogues. They said prayers. They chanted piyutim or liturgical poems that continue to be composed all the time. So there is contemporary scholarship last couple of decades on that, recognizing that there may have been, let's just call it centers of religious power. I don't mean geographical centers. I mean, human centers of religious power um, in the air quotes, Talmudic era, who were not the rabbis of the mission and Talmud. We don't exactly know who they were, okay? But, you know, um, even the Talmud talks about that, you know, most villages, most towns don't have a rabbi, right? Talks about rabbis going to a town. Will they be accepted as the rabbi or not? Which means most villages didn't have a rabbi. Jewish life didn't stop. Davening didn't stop, okay? So the question of, when and how the rabbis established their control over Jewish religious life is kind of an open question. And it's clearly not as simple as the Mishnah was published in 225. Everyone got the Mishnah and they said, okay, now we're all rabbinic Jews. Right. Okay. I want to wrap up in a moment, but Ilana, did you want to say something you had? a? Yeah, I, I, I do. I can't find, I can't find my hand up button. So very quick question. This discomfort with the um, emphasis on the battles and the military aspect, does this have um, some bearing on the decision to keep these books uh, and to put these books in the Apocrypha and not include them in the main, you know, offering? Maybe that could be, that's one possibility. The other, probably the major possibility, not to discount that one, really has to do with lateness. So at a certain Uh point, the canon seems to be closed. closed. Yeah, yeah. Most most modern scholars say that half of the book of Daniel was actually written during the Maccabean revolt, but it purports to have happened to Daniel 
a courtier in Persia who lived uh, 400 years before, and that might be why the book of Daniel snuck in. Um, But we know that there are other Jewish books that are being written then that are not about wars or battles that don't make it into the canon. So it may just have to do with it didn't have the authority of earliness and the canon was already coming to be accepted. And just just one other aspect of that discomfort with the the Jews in revolt. Yeah. Could it be that it's not just about how the Jews in revolt get, you know, clobbered um, at those two later examples, but also this, you know, sort of famously um, um, famous discomfort with Jews as military actors in the sense that 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 that, you know, over over the centuries could, I don't know, fuel anti-Semitism, that kind of thing. Um, it could be. So uh, again, what I've sought to do today um, is we we all have, we can have our own ideas or we've learned things about, well, it's because Jews believe da-da-da, the rabbis believe da-da-da. And I just want to sort of leave you with um, all of these things are not history, they're historiography, meaning how is history written? How is memory enshrined? And who decides what is the point of enshrining a memory and how does what they choose to remember, what they choose to tell as the story, how does that define for later generations what they say the story is? So the point, the reason I brought you these things to look at today is for us to see that um, we sometimes take for granted, right? Uh, but it's really, we take for granted what the story is, but what we take for granted is based on who chooses to tell the story, sorry, who, what version of the story we've received, how someone decided to tell that version, and then how we interpret why we have this version and not that version, okay? But all of that is left for later generations, our teachers and us to make inferences about None of that is actually in the raw data. The Talmud doesn't say, here's why we're not talking about the military victories, right? All that is our speculation. So I want us to speculate tentatively and humbly at 9 a.m. L.A. time, even as we say, everyone have a happy and light-filled Hanukkah, and God willing, we'll meet again next week and go back to Elohai Natsur. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.